0: It's beautiful. Uh, Today's scripture is from Isaiah. It isn't from Isaiah 55. It is Isaiah 55. So fasten your seatbelts. Hear the word of the Lord Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen. That you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower, and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Blessed be the word of the Lord.
1: So this, uh, this winter, we've been uh, allowing the prophet Isaiah to show us what salvation is all about. Last week, uh, we were in Isaiah 54, and God kind of laid out this feast for us, right? This, this uh, incredible way of salvation and freedom. And then in Isaiah 55, God says, come to the table and eat. Partake of this feast. I hope you felt God beckoning you to his table as the text was read this morning. In this chapter, we're we're presented with a contrast, a choice, and a promise. Contrast, a choice, and a promise. So let's dive in. First, a, a contrast. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. God is offering us a seat at his table where wine and milk flow with abundance and rich foods are piled high and best of all, it's free. And at the same time, Babylon is charging Israel an arm and a leg for food that leaves them feeling hungry. God wants to satisfy his people. Babylon wants to exploit them. Uh, my family and I are reading a book together this week. We came across an idea from the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, who argues that the Bible begins with a liturgy of Abundance. With a good God who creates a good world, and everything in it is good, good, and very good. But our imaginations in this fallen world have become dominated by uh, by what Brueggemann calls the myth of scarcity. And this is the idea that there's really not enough. Resources are scarce, and therefore every individual, every family, every tribe, every nation needs to make sure that they get enough. And the myth of scarcity breeds insecurity and fear. It causes people, it causes nations to hoard resources and even resort to violence and oppression in order to secure themselves. Everything from stockpiling toilet paper to withholding forgiveness and kindness to subjugating and enslaving entire races of people are symptoms that the myth of scarcity has taken hold. And the myth of scarcity makes us grasping and and possessive, not just with our resources, but with our power and our social capital. Meanwhile, God's word assures us that there, there really is plenty. He's created a world teeming with abundance, and God is a good father, and he delights in providing for his children. Jesus says that those who don't know God worry about what they'll wear and what they'll eat, and they end up hoarding clothing and food. But those who know God trust him to meet their needs daily and are no longer preoccupied with having enough. And when we recognize God's abundance, we are liberated from our need to grasp and possess. And we're free to be kind and generous, just like our Father in heaven is generous. When we trust in God's supply and we experience God's provision, our fear and our insecurity melt away. And we begin to view our possessions and our power and our social capital not as limited commodities, but as gifts that we can share with others, even those who are outside of our tribe. And the key to moving from this myth of scarcity to this liturgy of abundance is in the second half of verse 3. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Now, what's this all about? In the ancient Near East, covenants were what brought order and stability to relationships in commerce, in family life, in religion. And a covenant would outline each party's responsibilities to the other. So I do this for you. You do this for me. Everybody wins. Well, God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. He said, if you worship me alone, if you obey my commands, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you. I'll make sure that you flourish in the land that I give you. And, of course, we know what happened. Israel broke the covenant. They went into exile. And that covenant was annulled. Which is why God says through Isaiah, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised David. He's promising to replace the old covenant with a new covenant. And the new covenant is going to be like the one he made with David. God promised David that David's royal line would never end, that his kingdom would just keep going on forever and ever and ever. And there were no stipulations, there were no conditions. David didn't have to do anything. And now God is saying to Israel, I'm going to make a covenant with you, just like the one I made with David. It's going to be unconditional. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about this new covenant in which God promises to cleanse his people and to give them a new heart and to put a spirit inside of them. And just before his death, Jesus establishes this new covenant and he seals it with his own broken body and his blood. What God does with Israel in establishing this covenant of grace is the exact opposite of what Babylon did. See, Babylon said to those who were living in exile, all right, here's the deal. If you assimilate into our culture, if you adopt our values, if you speak our language, if you worship our gods, then you can have jobs, you can have positions of influence and power, you can enjoy all the benefits of our economy and our military, you can flourish right alongside of us. But if you don't blend in, if you don't drink the Kool-Aid, if you insist on being different, we're going to treat you like slaves. It's up to you. This is how the world operates. If you play the game, you might win. If you act the right way, if you talk the right way, if you dress the right way, you might be accepted. Maybe. The world puts us under contract, God puts us under grace. The world says, This is what you must do in order to be accepted, in order to belong, in order to make it. God says, I will love you unconditionally, full stop. I will lavish my abundance, my joy, my peace on you, and you don't have to earn it. It's free. A couple of months ago, Evie had a solo in their school chorus concert, and I asked Evie, are you nervous? Yes. Do you get nervous when you sing in church? No. Why not? Because my church family loves me no matter what. The world puts us under contract. God puts us under grace. The world says you have to perform. You have to conform to our standards, our expectations, our way of thinking. You have to play the game. God says, come all you who are thirsty. You who have no money come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And by the way, when we as a church are truly living out God's heart, we put one another under grace. I'm glad that's been Evie's experience. I was talking with someone this week about this text and this person said, you know, it is so easy to be written off. It's so easy to be labeled To be canceled. It's like the world just just can't wait to dismiss you. And the reason that we label, the reason that we cancel people is so we don't have to deal with them. We don't have to listen to them. We don't have to consider their perspective. When we slap labels on people, what we're really doing is we're giving ourselves a justification for ignoring or writing off their personhood. At least until they conform to our standards of acceptability. The world puts us under contract. God puts us under grace. The world tells us there's never enough. We have to scratch and claw to get what we need. God says, there's plenty. The world charges us an arm and a leg for fast food acceptance and snack machine belonging. It forces us to sell our souls, compromise our integrity, fake, pose, pretend, to get little scraps of conditional love, bread, bread, that does not satisfy God offers us the unconditional fear banishing shame smashing self-giving love of Christ for nothing when God says come all you who are thirsty he's saying let me give you everything that you need in order to flourish everything that you need to be fully alive a rock solid identity You are my beloved child. You are a royal priest. Unconditional belonging, acceptance that's not based on your performance, but that's based on Jesus' perfect record. A satisfying purpose, the opportunity to partner with God to bring justice and peace and reconciliation to this planet and to help bring heaven down. And true security that stretches all the way into eternity, God says I can give you all that and it won't cost you anything, it's paid for. What can the world offer us? A fragile identity that's based on our performance, that's based on the perceptions of others, conditional belonging that comes and goes depending on the day, depending on the minute, the burden of creating our own purpose which has proven to be incredibly anxiety-producing, and the illusion of security, with no guarantees. And what will it cost you to take hold of these cheap alternatives? More and more and more. The world tells us there's not enough, there's never enough, God invites us to a feast. The world puts us under contract, God puts us under grace. Verses 6 through 9 present us with a choice. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Here's the choice. You can stay right where you are, under contract, or you can come home. Israel technically didn't have to go home. They, They actually could have stayed in Babylon. Cyrus gave them permission to return home, but he didn't force them to go. They had a choice. In Luke 14, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a party. And everyone's invited, but not everyone comes. No one has to come. It's totally up to you if you you stay in Babylon or take your place at God's table. And the feast is free, but coming home requires humility. Verse 7 says, let the wicked forsake their ways. And the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and He will have mercy on them. This is a picture of repentance. To repent means to, to, to turn around and go in a new direction. Remember before we had GPSs and Google Maps, and if you were going somewhere new, you had to like read a map. Or you had to like follow directions that someone gave you. Remember that? And if the direction said, you know, drive 3.2 miles and then turn left, you had to like watch your odometer while you're driving in an unfamiliar place at night. Remember how crazy that was? And sometimes you'd miss your turn. And the person in the passenger seat, if they were paying attention, they might say, hey, you know, I think you missed your turn. And you might say, no, 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 it's up, it's up here, it's up here. And you might keep driving, you know, one more mile, two more miles, three more miles. Eventually your pastor would be like, dude, You need to turn around. You missed your turn. And after a while, you realize that they're right. But if you turn around, then you're admitting that you're wrong. But if you don't, you'll never make it to your destination. So eventually, you have to give in. And in many ways, this was like the whole point. This was the whole point of exile. For generations, God sent Israel prophets to be that alert passenger. To say to Israel, <clears throat> you need to turn around. And Israel refused and refused and dug in their heels and ended up far, far away from God. And those 70 years in Babylon gave Israel an opportunity to admit that they were wrong. That they were suffering as a result of their pride, their stubbornness, their self-reliance. And, and those things have a long history. Back, back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were in the garden Everything was good. But in the middle of the garden was a tree, and God said, look, everything in the garden is yours. Eat whatever you want. Take whatever you want, except for that one tree. Don't eat from that one tree. If you do, you'll die. Obey me about that tree, and you'll live. It was the first choice humans had to make. And we know what happened. Satan appears. He casts doubt on God's goodness. He says, well, obviously God doesn't love you. Obviously, God wants to keep all the power for himself. He must, he must not want you to be happy. Does that sound like someone you should trust? And our parents bought the lie. He said, yeah, you're right. I don't need God to tell me what to do. From now on, I'll call the shots. I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. And trust gives way to suspicion. And our relationships broke. And we lost Shalom. And we've been in exile ever since. And we know deep down inside that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. As we heard David Foster Wallace saying last week, we've lost some ultimate good and we're trying to get it back. We're trying to get back to the garden. We're trying to recover shalom. And here Isaiah says there is a way back to the garden. But it goes by way of the tree you have to go back to that first choice. You have to decide this time to trust the God whose ways are not like our ways and whose thoughts are not like our thoughts. See, repentance isn't feeling bad about ourselves or beating ourselves up. Repentance is saying, shoot, I'm driving in the wrong direction. I need to turn around. And the only thing that costs you is your pride. But there are an awful lot of people who don't want to pay that cost. By the way, this never stops being the rub for Christians, no matter how long we follow Jesus. It's not like we, we repent once and we're good. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you, you have to deny yourself, and you have to take up your cross daily. Meaning every day, we have to die to ourselves. Every day, we have to crucify our pride and our self-determination and say, Jesus, I am trusting you to show me how life works best. And I don't think it's just our pride that gets in the way. I think our fear gets in the way sometimes too. I think we think to ourselves, if I repent, if I admit I was wrong, is God going to like rub my face in that? Is he going to make me feel worse than I already feel? Because that's what happens in our human relationships all the time. We know what it's like. You show just a little bit of vulnerability, just a little bit of contrition, and people use it against you. They weaponize it against you. God won't do that to you. Isaiah says, let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. The Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God is a safe person to confess to. You can let your guard down around him. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. So we have a choice. We can stay in Babylon. We can stay in control or we can turn around and say to God, Your ways are not my ways, but I trust you. And friend, I want you to know that there is so much peace to be found when we stop trying to go our own way and we trust God. It is such a relief to turn on that GPS. Salvation really begins to unfold in our lives when we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding and submit to him in all our ways. I know one Christian leader who prays, God, I believe that this is where you've called me. But if you have a new bidding for my life, if you have a new assignment for me, then show me what it is and I will follow you wherever you lead me. And he prays that prayer every single day as a way of daily surrendering his will to God's. I have a friend who said to me recently, I always try to have something in my life that terrifies me. Is my friend a masochist? I don't think so. He doesn't want to become complacent. He doesn't want to get stuck on autopilot. He wants something in his life that brings him to the end of himself and forces him to rely on God. Isaiah 30.15 says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. For my friend, the thing that terrifies him is the thing that teaches him to rest. The thing that brings him to the end of himself is the thing that facilitates quietness and trust in his life. All right, what about that promise? Well, I want you to imagine being in exile, and you get this letter from Isaiah. You hear all this talk about forgiveness and feasting and a fresh start and it must have sounded like a pipe dream. Like it was too good to be true. And that's probably why God says in verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. What's God doing here? He's bringing them back to Genesis 1. How did God create? How did he make make everything? He did it with his word. God spoke the universe into being. God is saying, my word has power. It makes things happen. When I say I'm going to do something, it's as good as done. When I say you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, you can count on it. When I say that the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands, I mean that all of creation will join in the song of the redeemed. And when I say instead of the the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. I mean that one day I will reverse the curse, and the whole earth will be liberated from its bondage to death and decay. And then finally, Isaiah says, this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. In other words, your salvation will make me famous, God says. Verse 5, nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has endowed you with splendor. What is going on here? Nations are going to come running to Israel? Really? Why? To laugh at them? They have nothing. They've been reduced to rubble. Forget splendor. They don't even have walls. Why would anyone go running to Israel? I mean, that would be like the leaders of the wealthiest countries today going to Haiti or Syria and saying, wow, what's your secret? Not happening. That would be crazy. That's about how crazy verse 5 sounded. Why would anyone go to that ash heap and say, we want what you have? That would be nuts. Except it happened. How do I know? because I'm looking around this room right now and I don't see a lot of ethnically Jewish people. I see the nations worshiping Israel's God. If you wanna know how that happened, read the book of Acts. We'll dovetail nicely with this unity in the trenches thing we've been talking about. But right now you are surrounded in these seats with tangible evidence that God's word accomplishes its purposes. When God says he's going to do something, it is as good as done. And therefore, we do not grow weary or lose heart. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? When we fail, when we fall flat on our face, we remember that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When the wrong seems so strong, we remember that God is the ruler yet, and that one day justice will flow like rivers and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And until that day, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, empowering and equipping us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And when we feel the earth groaning beneath and around us, we remember that God promises to make all things new, and we do our part to care for his creation, but we do not lose hope. Because God makes good on his promises. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Come and know this God who loves you without condition. Who lavishes his abundance on you. Who guides you with ways that are beyond our ways whose mercies are new every morning, who makes our lives beautiful and fruitful, and who accomplishes his purposes. Come make your home in him and have life to the full. Let's pray. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Let's stand and sing.